Evening, everyone. It's good to be with you, and uh, I'm going to be speaking today on Romans chapter 2. I'm going to be preaching from, or speaking from the NLT, so if you have a device and you can choose uh, what version to read from, uh, choose the NLT, New Living Translation. Um, so who, just by show of hands, who was here last week? Just put up your hand. Okay, that's quite, quite a cool, and who came here for the first time? You don't have to feel bad, like it's, you know, people are like looking around like, no, that's awesome. Okay, cool. So I just want to uh, give you a little bit of background and then we're going to launch forth into this. Interestingly, I timed the reading of Romans chapter 2. It took three minutes to read and I'm going to take seven minutes to explain it, joking. Um, but it's amazing because you, the, you cover quite a lot of ground really quickly when you're reading scripture. So um, anyway, so a little bit of background to this uh, letter. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He's never been there before and he kind of is making Making a cold call. Paul Taylor did a really uh, great job last week of explaining this. He kind of cold calls them and introduces himself. And I think he's got two hopes. One, he wants to help the church in Rome uh, bridge some of the divide between Jews and Gentiles, which we really will get into. And two, I think he wants to use them as a launch pad to go into Western Europe. And uh, we know that he doesn't get to go into Western Europe because he ends up in Rome uh, under arrest, where he's eventually executed. Um, but here's the thing, is that the, the background to this church is that it was full of both Romans and Jews, uh, two of the most proud people groups that there were existed within the ancient world. There were essentially three uh, people groups that dominated ancient culture. It was the Romans, um, it was the Greeks, and it was the Jews. Uh, the Jews certainly for their religious life, the Greek for their thought life, they were brilliant, they just weren't you know, brilliant at thinking, not at doing so much. And then the Romans, who in a sense were kind of like the, a little bit of the Germans of the day, like they didn't have the best universities. Good Roman families sent their sons to Greek universities because they were better at thought, but the Romans were phenomenal administrators, phenomenal military people, and basically had conquered the entire known world and brought unprecedented prosperity and peace after 200 years of infighting. Uh, and so these guys uh, were both proud of their heritage, and now they were trying to uh, figure out how to be in church together. Um, essentially what happened is the Jews had been in Jerusalem where during Acts chapter 2 Pentecost happened, Peter preaches, and some of those Jews went back to Rome and started a church. Uh, eventually some Gentiles, some Romans were added uh, into the mix um, and they had lived together, but it was essentially it was a Jewish faith. You don't, we don't think of our Christian faith being a Jewish faith, um, but if you've ever read the Bible, you might have noticed what are all the Jews doing in the Christian book, uh, and that's because God used the Jews to bring salvation to the world, which is what we'll get into a little bit, but Jesus said very plainly, salvation is of the Jews. Uh, that's who God chose and God used. Um, and so they come in, and they actually let Romans come into what is a Jewish thing. It was considered a sect of Judaism, uh, Christianity in the early days. Um, but then the Emperor Nero kicks all the Jews out of Rome, uh, and so they all leave, and then a Roman leadership emerges, and they are running the church. And then Nero, uh, the next emperor, lets the Jews come back, and they do that. Uh, and then now they've got a, a bit of a power struggle going on, and who gets to lead the church? Is it a Jewish church? Is it a Roman church? And how do they reconcile these things? Um, and so Paul's really writing, uh, really to introduce himself, but also to try and settle this dispute. It's necessary that the Romans and the Jews within this church work together and have a great relationship because that's what Jesus does. He brings peace. And so it's essential to who they are. Uh, and so that's a little bit of where we, we're getting to. And Paul's, uh, in the first few chapters, what Paul's really doing is he's eroding the confidence of Romans in their Romanness. 
and he's eroding the confidence of Jews in their Jewishness. And so he's trying to tell them, hey, if you're proud about anything except for Jesus Christ, you've missed the point. And so to the Romans, at the end of chapter 1, and Paul explained this last week, uh, he gives a litany of sins. And Rome really, in so many ways, was a cesspool of debauchery. They, they took debauchery to whole new standards. They, they used to do these games, you know, the, the Roman games. But we know about all the bad things that happened and people getting killed and all that kind of stuff. But people used to eat so much until they were so full, and then they would go outside and vomit so that they could carry on eating. There was a whole culture devoted to sensual pleasure. And so Paul goes through this list of sins that uh, should have made them blush. And you can just imagine the Jewish believers sitting there going, yeah, Paul, tell them. You know, like when you come to church and you invite that person, you're like, oh, you need to hear this. Um, and in reality, what Paul does in chapter 2 is he turns the attention from the Romans, and now he's undermined their Romanists, like, hey, look at the debauchery in your culture that you celebrate so much. And then he takes, and the Jews are going, yeah, yeah, give it to them, Paul. And then Paul goes, okay, now I'm going to take aim at you. And that's essentially where we're at. And, and so often we just think it was just the Jews, but it's not just the Jews, it's also moralists. So moralists are people who um, take a high sense of uh, emphasis in terms of their morality and, generally speaking, are self-righteous and judge other people, Okay, but a Jewish audience. And so that's who he takes aim at. And so we start in verse 1. You may go there right now. It says, you may think you can condemn such people. And what Paul's doing here is he's using a, a common rhetorical style of teaching, which is common in the ancient world, where he's representing the thoughts of some uh, people group and then knocking them down. So he's representing the thoughts of the moralists or the Jewish believers. You may think you can condemn such people. You know those uh, homosexuals and those uh, adulterers and those thieves and those people who are proud and arrogant and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. You think you can condemn them, and the Jews are going like, yeah, of course, but you are just as bad. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, say that again. And then, and then he has this other line, and you have no excuse. And you can just imagine the ringing in their ears. You're like, sorry? Uh, we're as bad as that lot. Yeah, you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. And that's the whole purpose of this chapter, is to show the Jewish people that they have no confidence in their Jewishness. They're just as bad as people who are non-Jews or don't have the his, uh, religious background they have, and they have no excuse before God. That's, what, that's the whole purpose of this chapter. He's trying to make that point. Um, when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. Okay, so have you ever been in a moment in your life when you've heard of some sin or you've witnessed something and something suddenly just rise up and you go, that's wrong. That, that's wrong. Ever had that moment? All of us have had that moment because we have something called a conscience. God's wired it into us, okay? And we get to look at something and say, that's wrong. Um, and then he says, you're actually condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And they're probably not agreeing with him yet, but he, creates a, he has an argument to show them this, this is true. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? So he's saying the very fact that something inside of you goes, that's wrong, that should be judged, shows that, A, there's such a thing called justice. We want justice, but why? Why is it wired into human fabric to want justice? Well, because God is a just God. Okay? And so the very fact that you want justice 
Anyone looked at a situation and gone, that's wrong, we need justice there? The very fact that you want justice means that justice is coming, but you will be judged by the great judge, which is God. It points to the fact that uh, there is a God who is, does believe in right and wrong, and such a thing as justice will come. It will just come by God, who's the judge, and he will judge everyone, not just the people we think are bad. The people who aren't like us. Now everyone will be judged by God. Verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You see, so often God delays judgment in people's lives. And we've got this way sometimes because we, sometimes, have you ever, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you, you're caught in a sin habit that you can't get out of, but you, you kind of justifying it a little bit, and because you've got away with it and you haven't really felt the consequences yet, you think God won't judge you. And so there's a delayed justice of God sometimes. God delays justice. And so when justice is delayed for us, in other words, I've done something wrong, but I haven't felt the immediate consequence, we go, well, it mustn't be that bad. But actually what he's saying is the delay of justice is God's kindness, God's tolerance, and God's patience towards you. And then he says, this amazing thing, is not meant to make you feel like you're getting away with it and it's not that bad. It's actually meant to bring you to repentance. I can't believe God, I mean, sometimes you do something, you're like, man, I should experience some kind of consequence. You don't. It should invoke something. You says, I can't believe God has shielded me from the consequence of my own sin. How kind is he? Man, if I had to reap the full justice for everything I've ever done wrong, what would my life look like? And so it does, shouldn't result in pride. It should result in great humility that results in repentance. And when it doesn't result in repentance, it means that pride's taken over your heart. And you think you've dodged a bullet because actually you're kind of a special kind of sinner that doesn't really need God's justice. Verse 5, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. Anyone feeling a little bit like insecure at this moment? For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. All of this has a deadline. Justice is coming, but it's coming for everyone. All shall be judged. All shall stand before the great judge. All shall have their day when they stand before Jesus, and there's no getting off on a technicality. And when he says, oh, but you, and you say, yeah, but that guy. No, there's none of that stuff, because he sees straight to the heart. Verse 7, he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. Now, this might seem like eternal life is possible for people who keep on doing good and seek after the right things. And of course it is. If you lived a perfect, sinless life, never, ever, ever sinned in any way, shape, or form, then you could have eternal life. Anyone here done that? Okay, so for the rest of us, and what's he, what he's doing is saying, yeah, if you, if you live a perfect life, yeah, there's eternal life. But if you've ever messed up in one area, then you're guilty of the laws. The law is kind of like a, the, the worst Jenga tower in the world. You pull one block and the whole thing collapses. You're guilty of it all. Okay? Um, and that's because God's standard is perfection because that is who he is. Verse 8. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refu refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. 
You see, behind sin is selfishness. Me, I'm the most important person in this story, so I'm going to make decisions that serve me and harm the people around me. And what he says is that if, if you've ever sinned, if you've ever made that kind of choice, what's being stored up for you is that God will pour out his anger and wrath on you at one point. Verse 9, don't worry, it gets better. The gospel kicks in. Verse 9, there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So, so what Paul's referencing here is that the Jewish people are going, hey, hang on, we're kind of like the special ones because God chose us to bring salvation to the world. I mean, Jesus is Jewish. Paul, who's writing this letter, is Jewish. The laws, the whole old Bible was written by Jews, except for Luke and Acts. Luke was a convert to Judaism. And the only reason he has something to write about is because he had been educated in that background. The entire faith is Jewish. And so that's what they, they're appealing for. And he's saying, yeah, you, everyone who does wrong will receive what they get. Jew first, then the Gentiles. So because at that point, the Gentiles are going, hey, yeah, no, God, deal with the Jews there. Those are your people. You know, because now we hide behind the fact that we weren't, because if you've been given less, you have less responsibility, Right. You've given more, you've got more responsibility. So all of a sudden now it's convenient not to be Jewish. And he says, don't worry, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So there's an order, and you see this order in Paul. Wherever he goes and preaches in a new city, he goes first to the synagogues and, and preaches there, gives the Jews a chance to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And only when they reject him does he go to the Gentiles. And so he honors the process that God has. And if you're going, this is like quite... High grade, just stick around a few months. We'll get to Romans 19, 11, where a lot of the stuff is answered. But he's saying that, yes, salvation is coming to the Jew first and the Gentile, but judgment also comes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing wrong. There's two points here. Number one is that the Jews have the law, but they'll also be judged by it. You see, the Jewish people were incredibly proud of the fact that they had the law. And in a certain sense, they could. Because, every, you know, the Greeks, if you, you see what happened in Athens, Paul goes there and they're discussing endless ideas about what's right and wrong and morality and the purpose of life. And the Jews didn't have any of that because God himself had come on a mountain and given them two stone tablets and said, this is the way to live. They had absolute truth. Everyone else was scratching for it. They were definitively Right. And so they, uh, 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 in a sense, are proud of it. But on the other hand, the same law that they're proud about judges them because when you fail to obey it perfectly, there's consequences. The second point is that Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. You see, we can't pretend that people without Jesus Christ only ever do wrong. People without Jesus Christ are capable of good and often seek good. They're often they, they're sorrowful at the evil that they do. Why? Because they have a conscience. 
So what Paul's saying is, yeah, sure, you Jews have it written on stone tablets, you Jews have a written law, but the Gentiles have a law that's written on their heart, and their very behavior shows that they believe in right and wrong, and God put it there. And so he's going to judge the Jews by the law because that's what they've been given. And he's going to judge the Gentiles by the conscience and the sense of right and wrong because that's what they've been given. But all are going to be judged. Anyone here ever done something, even before coming to Christ, where afterwards you thought, ooh, that wasn't great? And then in that sense, your own conscience condemns you. And you know in that moment I'm a sinner. And you see, people all over the world have had basic principles of morality. Marriage, you know, it's not like, you know, people went from England and then they arrived somewhere at the bottom end of Africa and they're like, yo, these guys also have marriage. Unbelievable. Like, oh, come on, we've, we've never thought about marriage. You know, that's amazing. It's like every culture, now we might agree, disagree about who can marry who. We might disagree about how many people you can marry. How many wives you can take or how many husbands? I don't know if that's a thing. Um, we might disagree about that, but we all agree about the fact that not anyone can just... There has to be exclusivity to this thing called marriage because God's built that into the hearts of people. We might disagree about theft, about who can steal from who because there literally were classes of people. It's like, we're, it's cool to steal from those people, but hey, don't steal from me because theft is wrong within our people, the people we care about. So even there, and these are laws in a sense that have existed all over the planet, despite great distances and people having no contact, like people literally travel to some other group of people that have never had exposure to the outside world and the same basic sense of morality lives within that tribe or that group of people. Why? Because God's given it there, given it to them in their hearts. Verse 16, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus will judge everyone's secret life. Interesting that Paul says, this is the message I proclaim. So the judgment of God was a normal part of preaching the gospel for Paul. And in fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has it in his sermon, his first sermon to the Gentiles. In Acts 17, speaking to Athens, Paul mentions about Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. Justice is coming. We've got a predicament and right now, there's like a stalled, a delayed judgment that's meant to bring people, give people a chance to repent. But the time will come when that period of the world's history is over and there's no more chance. And in that moment, God will judge the living and the dead and not just judge them, he'll judge them everyone's secret life. The thing that you said, I will never tell anyone about that thing, that thing. God and you will have a conversation about. Verse 17. And you, anyone feeling like, yo, I need a savior? Like, yo, imagine there was someone who died for my sins. Because the point is, you only know how good you've got it if you really believe the consequences of sin are severe. If you, if you think sin's like, ah, then Jesus kind of died for me. But if you're like, man, sin... A day's coming when I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account for my life and all the secret things, the things I thought, the things I can't even admit to myself that I did, those things will be judged. All of a sudden, I'm desperately in need of someone who died for my sins, who's forgiven much, loves much. And you call yourselves Jews, and 
You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him, which they do. They've been given the law. God chose them. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convicted that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. In other words, we've got the law. Surely we're the moral superior, morally superior ones here, and we can instruct and teach others. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, verse 20, for you are certain that God's laws gives you complete knowledge and truth, absolute truth. They believe they had it, verse 21. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? Remember Jesus' statement? Hey, forget about the speck in your brother's eye. Look at the plank in your own. First remove that and then deal with your brother. You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry. But do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. And this is where Jesus comes along and he extends the law to everyone. He goes, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you've lusted, looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Why? Because the attitude and the act are the same root problem. Because what, what happens is, is if we do something that's not cool, what we'll say is, well, I didn't mean that. I, that wasn't my intention. So I excuse the action because of a decent intention, but God says, no, I can see the difference. You still did it. And sometimes when, when we have the intention, and people say, hang on, there's something in your heart there. Your intention's not right. You'll say, oh, well, I didn't do anything about it. I didn't act on it. So whatever way, you say, hey, I've got an outcher. I did something bad, but I didn't really mean that. Oh, I've got bad intentions, but I didn't do anything about it. But God judges on both intention and action. That's why he says, if, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Why? Because that's the seed, that's the, the fertile place that ends in adultery. And the amazing thing is that in the previous chapter, there's, there's three times God says, uh, Paul says, so God abandoned them to shameful things. Verse 24, this is chapter 1. Verse 26, that is why God abandoned them to shameful desires. In other words, the shameful desires there and the judgment of God is to abandon them and let them do what they want to do. And the amazing thing is just because God hasn't abandoned you to your shameful desire doesn't make you morally superior to the person he has abandoned. It just means he's shown you grace. He's restrained you. He's given you the sense that's wrong. He's given you the fear of the consequences. He's the one that's restrained you. He hasn't abandoned you to the things that you've kept yourself thinking and pondering about. Verse 25, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision. So first he smashed the law, which was like their big thing. The second thing, I mean their big sense of confidence about being Jews. The second thing is the ceremony of circumcision. We don't understand this so much. But there are cultures today where circumcision is such a big deal that if you are not circumcised, you are not considered a man. My dad and mom passed in a church which was 95% black. And there are people there who are engineers with MBAs, but they haven't gone through the ritual of circumcision. And so they're not considered a man in their family. And when they go home, they have to sit outside and eat with the children. So there are some cultures where these kind of rituals are absolutely crucial. And so for the Jewish people, the ceremony of circumcision was the thing that marked them as separate from all the world. You Jewish the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. 
And if the Gentiles obey God's law, remember those people who instinctively do what's right because God put the con- gave them a conscience? And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles will, who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. And for a Jewish hearer, they just got bashed upside the head. You're like, say what? Yeah, the, the guys who instinctively do right in some areas of their life, they'll stand in judgment over you because you know God's law and you still break it. You've got it written in front of you and you still break it. Verse 28, for you are not a true Jew just because you are born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. That is the very definition, by the way, of what a true Jew is. <laughs> Two things. Are you born of Jewish parents? To this day, are you born of Jewish parents? Have you been through circumcision? And he's saying, no, you're not a true Jew if you've done those things. Verse 29, no, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. It's about a right relationship, not the packaging. It's like, oh, you've got the packaging, but the inside, it's, you don't have a right relationship with God. It's about the heart, not the outward form. Because we know about this, right? A husband can have the outward form of loving his wife. He can buy her flowers. He can take her on dates. He can be at home at five to help her with the kids. He can say all the right things. But you can't fake passion, baby. We know this in life. You can have the packaging of the right thing, but inside, if it's not motivated by genuine love and passion, it doesn't satisfy. And we know that in our relationships and how much more with God who sees completely through the outward packaging, at the heart. And so he says, no, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Here's the problem. We are completely incapable of making our own hearts right. So, okay, okay, so it's not the law. It's not circumcision. I've just got to get a right heart with God, but I can't do that. Help. I need a Savior. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. The only thing that can change the human heart is the Spirit of God. And so this leaves us in the fact where A, we realize we're sinners. B, we know we have to have a change of heart. And C, we're completely incapable of getting the thing that we need. In other words, we are completely at God's mercy. And that's exactly where Paul wants us. And here he says, And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. In other words, all the posturing that was going on in the Roman church was about approval from people, not from God. All the judging of other people and thinking who's kind of a little bit superior, that was about getting other people's approval, not God's. All the sense of moral superiority and cultural superiority All of that will end with a changed heart. And so Paul's calling them to the thing that one thing matters, and that's God's approval of you. And so he's really at the point where he's teed them up, said, now you need Jesus. You need him. Hey, you Romans who think you're morally or culturally superior, you superpower of the ancient world, Look at the degradation in your society. Hey, you Jews who think you're morally, religiously superior, look at the degradation in your own life. Man, we need Jesus. 
And uh, it's, uh, yeah, in the next, in the third chapter, Paul builds on this argument. And uh, we're going to have that in five minutes. So thank you so much. Five-minute break.